Welcome to Happy Homes and Gardens. I am your host. My name is Daphne Royce. I am a real estate broker, architecture, and interior designer. Philoli Historic House and Garden is located in Woodside, approximately 25 miles south of San Francisco. Covers over 650 acres of land overlooking Crystal Spring Reservoir and the Santa Cruz Mountains. The grounds include a 54,000 square foot mansion surrounded by magnificent gardens, orchards, and natural lands with distinct ecosystems, including a trail. Filoli is considered to be one of the finest remaining country estates of the 20th century. They offer visitors numerous activities and programs throughout the year and have even been used as the home in many Hollywood films. I have a Jean Sawyers here, who is a horticulturalist and will tell us more about Filoli. Welcome, Jean. Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. Happy to be here. Would you tell us a little bit about you and what is a horticulturalist? Yeah. Um, so I'm, my name is Jim Sawyers. I'm the director of horticulture at Filoli. So I oversee the, um, the entire horticulturist team, which is uh, 15 of us in total, um, who work in the gardens and the greenhouses. Uh, I came to Filoli 26 years ago um, as one of the horticulturists who worked in one of the sections, the sunken garden section of the garden. Um, and then for a number of years, I worked in the greenhouses as the greenhouse manager. Um, and then since 2014, I've been the director of horticulture. And um, I, uh, I first visited Filoli, I'll just tell this little story. I first visited Filoli only six months before I started working here. and I. Um, I came on a very rainy day. Um, there were very few guests. Um, the spring display, it was in April of, of, 20, of 1995, and uh, sorry, 1994. And uh, the spring display was kind of waning. Um, so it wasn't a great experience for me as my first, first time visit. Um, but then um, I was wrapping up my master's degree and was looking um, to, to um, find a job in the Bay Area. And I, uh, I, I saw a opening for a position here and I applied to just to go through the, the interview process. And, um, but when I, when I uh, fortunately was offered an interview and I came out and um, when I learned about the work that was happening here and learned more about the history of the garden, I was just overwhelmed and um, wanted, wanted the job so bad. So flash forward 26 years later, I um, now oversee the, the department and, and the team um, of horticulturists. And a, a horticulturist is um, someone who cares for plants. And um, it's kind of a broad term that um, it can include gardens. So someone who works in a garden, you know, sometimes you call someone who works in a garden a gardener, but really they're a horticulturist. They're caring for and, and, and keeping alive the plants and, and having those plants thrive. But other, um, other uh, branches under horticulture include viticulture. So people who take care of grapevines um, or table grapevines or people who take care of fruit trees, orchards, um, are horticulturists. Um, so it's everything from all the different edible crops that we grow, those people are, are horticulturists, to, to more garden type um, horticulturists who take care of plants that flower and are grown for, for their beautiful flowers as well. So it's a, it's a pretty broad field. Um, and uh, I, I actually went to UC Davis 
where um, where horticulture has always been an important part of um, the programs that they that they offer, and they have people who um, study orchard crops and grape crops and um, different aspects and within horticulture it can be gardens but it can also be floriculture so people who grow um, cut flowers for for arranging roses and chrysanthemums and, and gerbera daisies and all those different things you think of when you go to the florist um, to buy that is also uh, an aspect of horticulture where people are growing flowers um, for for people to enjoy so. Could you tell us about different part of the gardens, orchards, like you mentioned earlier, yeah. and anything else in Filoli? Yeah. So the garden is um, considered 16 acres of formal gardens. So that is um, kind of the, the main spaces that people visit. And um, the house, um, the house here is, as you mentioned, was a is a 54,000 square foot mansion. Um, and it's it um, now is kind of lies on the edge of the garden. Um, we're hoping actually to eventually make it more the center of the experience when people come here. Um, but that's for the, the you know the, the future, um, some of the planning that we're doing. Um, but the the gardens were laid out mostly south of the house, so um, we're actually sitting in the southernmost uh, edge of the garden. And um, this garden um, had various people who were part of the design. Um, the, the kind of grander scheme started with Willis Polk who designed the mansion and then um, Arthur Brown um, of Blake, Will and Brown who's the team who did um, City Hall in San Francisco, um, the Orchard, the, orchard, the Opera House in San Francisco, um, Hoover Tower at Stanford, many important kind of early 20th century buildings were designed by Blake, Will and Brown. Arthur Brown um, along with Bruce Porter um, who was um, kind of a Renaissance man artist who was connected to the Bourne family who built Filoli. And uh, they, they laid out um, kind of the more intimate spaces within the, the greater garden um, and worked with Isabella Warren, who was an important um, early 20th century um, plants woman, uh, also a florist, a party planner. Um, but she, she helped with a lot of the color scheme throughout the garden. Um, and she actually worked later with the Roth family who bought the, the estate from um, the Bourne family after Mr. and Mrs. Bourne passed away. Um, so the, they were kind of the, the artist team who, who designed the garden. And the garden is built on two long axes. We're actually um, uh, sitting toward the end of the longest axis in the garden, which runs from the north side of the house um, all the way to the high place where we're just below. We're just sitting just down below the high place. Um, and it's a 1,730 foot long um, axis through the garden. There are other axes um, um, to the east and west of us. And then um, breaking up those different axes are um, uh, uh, walls or hedges or pathways that create the different, um, what we call garden rooms. It, well, other people call them that too. It's, it's kind of a, a, a design um, name for uh, kind of a distinct section of a garden um, that has kind of a room-like feel. Um, so th that is how the garden is broken up. And so we have names for all those different sections. And uh, there are historic names. There are names that we use today because they make more sense to the guests when they're kind of navigating this, this big garden. Um, and um, so within those rooms, um, there are there are different plants. Um, so so I mentioned the sunken garden earlier. That was the section that I was in uh, when I first started. And the sunken is um, what we call the living room of the garden because it's the most highly designed and, and uh, 
highly, um, well, the, the, the number of plants that make up the display in that, that section of the garden are, are usually the, it's the biggest number of plants. Um, but it's also sunken in the ground. Part of that um, sinking feature is based on uh, hedges that surround it that give it kind of a, a low feel to it. Um, so the sunken is one of the garden rooms, but we have a cutting garden and we have a shark cathedral garden, which is based on a stained glass. Bruce Porter, who I mentioned earlier, was a stained glass artist and he uh, designed, he, um, uh, in, in the planning of this garden, um, somewhere along the line, there was a conversation about doing a stained glass garden. So we have a, a, a section of the garden that um, is based on a stained glass window at Shark Cathedral um, outside of Paris. Um, so there are, there's, there are hedges that make up what would be the lead of a, of a stained glass window. And then um, the different plants that we plant um, between the, the hedges are the, the, the color of the different glass in the uh, stained glass window. Um, so a number of, of number of garden rooms um, throughout the garden. Um, and that's kind of one of the beautiful things about Falole is you, you walk through, you kind of pass through one section and then the next section is revealed and you get to see another beautiful section of the garden and study it. That's one of the things that I've always loved about Falole is um, I've, I've visited, you know, a handful of the bigger grand estates like Versailles and some of the English country estates and things like that. And they're on a scale that just, you know, for most people just blows their mind. They have no, they would have no idea how to take care of that. But when you walk through this garden, you know, overall it's a, a giant garden, but each of these rooms is something that would fit in most people's, you know, if they have a, a normal sized backyard, it would fit in that backyard. Um, and so you can kind of wrap your head around each room as you walk through. The other um, important component of this garden are the orchards. Um, and we have a uh, almost seven acre orchard um, down on the lower section of the property, um, which is down below where the parking lot is today. Um, and then we're surrounded by fruit trees here. Um, there are down this whole line, uh, what we call the ULA. These are the yew trees um, next to us. I don't know if you, you can see them just behind us. Um, are uh, espaliered fruit trees. So they're fruit trees that are, are, are trained onto um, a post and wire system. So they're kind of this beautiful fan of a fruit tree um, trained on, um, on this post and wire system. But on either side of us, there are more fruit trees. Um, and fruit is, is the biggest collection of, of any type of fruit of plant we have here at Filoli. Um, we have um, probably 600 varieties of, of fruit in the garden um, and uh, probably eight to 900 trees um, total. Um, so we have, um, and we have apples and pears are, are the uh, predominant varieties, but we also have peaches and plums and, um, and unusual fruits called like medlar. Um, and um, we have uh, table grapes, so and we have citrus. So this this really um, can pretty much most of the fruits that you think of, um, you know, for most people and and beyond are, are the varieties that we have. Um, so this this incredible uh, fruit collection is is also uh, an important aspect, and that um, that is what the Bourne family wanted to create. They wanted to create a farm, um, a country place estate that was also um, product, had production and, and grew fruits and vegetables and cut flowers for them to, to use um, uh, for, for entertaining um, and for just living. Um, and fruit, fruit would be packed up during those days. And when they, when they traveled to um, their other houses, they would, they would take fruit or fruit would be, would be shipped to their other houses so that they could enjoy it um, when they were um, weren't on, on site. 
So um, yeah, and it's an incredible collection of, of fruits um, and and plants in general um, here at Farrelly. I understand Warren and Ross families owned this estate for about 60 years. Yeah. And before Mrs. Ross donated the property, I heard that the, the orchard wasn't taken care of at that time. So you guys yeah. had to rebuild them right. back to today. Yeah. Yeah, that um, that was um, the the fruit trees in most of the, this part of the, the what we call the formal garden um, continue to be ma maintained pretty well. But that that uh, seven acre orchard um, was not important to them. They you know they only had you know they had endless resources, but they decided they wanted to devote the resources to the garden. Um, and so the the you know not any to any fault of theirs, but it just wasn't you know they 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 fortunately bought this estate and saved this property, um, and you know later donated this property. So there are um, things that um, that the Roths did that uh, were were you know life changing for this garden. And uh, but but the orchards were just not something that they they um, cared as much about, and so they um, they just let the orchard kind of um, do its own thing um, and there you know there, there were fences but the fences started to come down over the years so um, there's an incredible deer population here and the deer went in and and uh, fruit tree leaves are like candy to deer and so they they ate a lot of the trees but they also didn't irrigate um, and so um, it wasn't until 1970 it's 1996 that um, that orchard was just left on its own and so we we wanted to to bring back that collection and we wanted to be able to celebrate that collection um down there and so um uh, the board um, gave money to the horticulture department to um, clear out um, what was originally the fence line um, it had just become overgrown with oak trees and poison oak and things like that um, so that was cleared out and a, a fence was put around the orchard to protect it from from deer getting in and then an irrigation system was put in um, um, and at that time, there were um, about 150 of the original trees. So there were trees that survived. No care, no um, supplemental irrigation of any kind um, and did great. And um, we've, we've lost a, a handful of those trees since then, um, but we still have uh, about 100 trees, um, 100, 105 trees down there that, that still survive. Um, and uh, so then we embarked on filling in all of the, the open spots that had been where trees had, had been lost over the years um, and and now have, have rebuilt it um, still it's still a work in progress um, there are conditions down there that make it challenging for for trees um, so there are some very wet spots um, there are some spots where the soil is not great for growing um, so we're it's like I said it's a work in progress and and um, we're, we're hopefully um, we've, we've kind of identified some things that we can do to uh, make it make it better growing conditions. Um, replacing um, some of the dwarf varieties. Um, fruit trees can be can be um, grafted onto different types of roots um, so that they can be kept small, medium, or full size. And we're, we're realizing that we really should have them on, on um, regular rootstock so that they become full size trees. So that's something that's in progress now. Um, but uh, we've really brought it back and now there are um, over 600 trees down there uh, and uh, it's, it's a beautiful, a beautiful, when we, we open it up during the month of October, 
um, for orchard days. Um, every weekend, um, the orchard is open. Just as part of your regular visitation, you can come in and walk through the orchard, see the fruit trees. Um, it's, a, it's really beautiful in fall. Sometimes there'll be a little bit of fall color starting. Um, it's, it's really you know, lovely to walk through an orchard of, of, of trees. Most of the fruit has been picked by then, but one thing that we do do is um, we leave um, our grape collection um, and people can, can graze the different grape varieties that we have and taste all the different grapes. Um, so that really, um, really enhances the visit for a lot of people, especially families. You know, the kids are really excited about the grapes and, um, and getting to taste those. Um, so, so yeah, the orchard is, has, um, in the last 25 years, uh, become more and more an important part of, um, you know, uh, this estate again, which has been great. So when they started to construct and design this uh, entire estate, are all the trees and um, orchards or um, any part of a vegetation, are they actually native in California? They are, yeah. Um, so this was a completely um, native oak woodland landscape. For the most part, there were some natural meadows on the land. Philoli sits um, uh, about, um, but a quarter mile or less, depending on where you are, from the San Andreas Fault. The San Andreas Fault runs through the property. Um, and if you are at the garden and have a view to the west, where the mountain starts to rise, that's the San Andreas Fault. And um, so because of the fault, there are, um, there are um, ecosystems on the property that were beyond the oak woodland. There were um, uh, some meadows, um, natural meadows as well. Um, but on this, this property total, we have oak woodland um, that was kind of down here where the garden was built, but we have redwood forest and we have Douglas fir forest and we have chaparral, which is an, another um, plant community that, that is on this property. So it was, um, you know, it was, it, it was a native landscape, but when the house was built and um, when um, they were considering the, the layout of the garden, some trees were kept. Um, so there are oaks um, in, and, in and around the garden that um, have been here over a hundred years, um, over since before the time that the Bournes built the property. And um, we continue to add um, oaks to replace, replace um, some of the older trees. Um, sometimes we add something nearby so that when the, uh, the original tree goes, we still have that component. Um, they, they, they are part of what gives this landscape its unique look is, is having the, the native trees that are um, in and around the garden. Um, and, uh, you know, for some people, it's, it's one of the highlights of the, the visit to see the giant oaks that are um, north of the mansion, just north of the mansion, um, but other, other oak trees that we have. Within the garden beyond that, we have what we um, now call the Woodland Garden, um, which is adjacent to the Woodland Garden Court, what was, which was originally the tennis court. And that originally was uh, a wild garden, and a wild garden is a garden that is um, uh, made up of the, the plants native to that area. But when Mrs. Roth lived here, she loved camellias and she loved rhododendrons and she loved um, dogwoods. And so those trees and, and shrubs were added to that section. So now it's, it's more of a woodland. There are still a number of other native plants in the woodland, but um, it's um, predominantly um, plants that are, that are exotic to the, the state. Would you kind of describe a little bit about natural lands and the ecosystems? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think we have 
seven distinct ecosystems. So um, I, I talked about the oak, oak, oak woodlands, um, the redwood forest. Um, we have the, the meadow areas. We have some riparian, some wet areas. We have a lot of um, natural creeks that run through the property. Um, so those have, uh, those are wetter areas. Um, we have uh, the chaparral um, that I mentioned. Um, I'm forgetting one, but um, those are those are the different ones. And you can see, um, you can either be in or see a number of those um, on the, the estate trail um, when you walk through. Um, so you're, you walk along the edge of the meadow, you walk through the oak, oak forest, um, you walk through a, a grove of redwood trees, um, a native grove of redwood trees. Um, you, you are near some of the wetter areas. You can see the chaparral, but, but none of it goes through any of the chaparral. Um, and uh, so with those, um, you know, I, I think that that is part of what, you know, you can hear birds in the background now. Um, it's not just this garden and the flowers and the, the irrigation, the water in the garden that attract uh, wildlife, it's also the, that we're surrounded by native lands and 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 birds and, and other animals have lived in this this um, this area uh, in and around this garden for for millennia and um, and so we have sparrows singing and we have um, we have you know all the all the wildlife that lives in the bay area from mountain lions and coyotes and bobcats and foxes the the higher predators um, are on the on the property and we, we see evidence of um, sometimes daily um, but we have all the birds and um, squirrels and raccoons and skunks and possums so we have all all of that and that um, that uh, is important for us because uh, and we're also you know you, at the very beginning you talked about us being adjacent to Crystal Springs Reservoir this land and the those streams that I mentioned all run off into Crystal Springs Reservoir so um, over the years, we have really made um, more and more of an effort to um, do things organically, um, sustainably, and um, do all that we can to protect this watershed, but also that helps to um, create better um, living conditions for uh, all those animals and birds here too. I understand when uh, Mr. and Mrs. Warren, when they designed this property and they want to be sustainable, so they will be able to have all the foods coming from the garden and the orchard, yeah. maybe the water from the reservoir yeah. and the wells. Yeah. They can lodge in the wood from the redwood trees. Mm -hmm. Is that still part of a goal for the garden today? Yeah, um, well, we definitely in the interpretation that we do, we tell those stories a lot. Um, we, um, we're actually in the, so, so definitely with the orchards, bringing back the orchard, um, uh, you know, we, we try to do that not only um, because it was an historic component of the estate and we want to bring that back for people to enjoy, but, um, but also for the, for the production so that we can um, make apple butter and pear butter and we can make hard cider and we can make other products that we can offer to the guests. Um, and, uh, so, so that's you know that those are the some of the reasons we're doing that. We're also right now in the midst of um, reopening uh, or opening our historic vegetable garden. Um, there's a vegetable garden that um, was part of this this upper production part of the garden. Uh, historically, it was where vegetables were grown for the the Warren and the Roth family. The last forty years, um, it has been. 
um, mostly offline in terms of um, guests being able to see it, although we have opened it up for, for programs and, and classes and things like that. But we're working toward opening it up um, in the next month. Um, so hopefully um, sometime this, this summer of 2022, the, the garden, the vegetable garden will open up and we can start growing things. Um, so when it was offline, it was a staff cooperative vegetable garden. So staff were using it to grow vegetables. Um, it would be, be shared um, amongst the staff. Um, but now we want to um, put that produce into um, pot products that we can create for guests to take home, you know, like tomato jam or, or um, a chutney or a salsa or something like that, but also uh, create uh, or offer vegetables to um, the the company who runs our cafe so that people can daily be eating things that come from the estate. Um, and with with um, the fruit historically and with any vegetables that we have that are excess, the idea is um, anything that's extra we, we offer to food banks um, for, for, um, for folks to have it who are in need. So that, um, that will continue as well with the vegetables. Um, so yeah, the, the Bournes also, they kept sheep and cows and um, uh, chickens and rabbits. Uh, so they really did want to live off this land. Um, and, um, and I, you know, we don't have a lot of history in terms of how much they were able to, um, but I think that, um, they, uh, it definitely supplemented a, a lot of what they needed for regular meals. Um, my guess is that they probably, um, used those, those products as much as they could when they were entertaining so they could, they could share that, that bounty with their guests. Um, but water was also and continues to be an important component of this estate. And originally, the, the Bournes built a reservoir um, kind of up, um, up the mountain a little ways and um, soon learned that that was not gonna be enough water um, for them, for this, this size of estate. One of the things that the Bournes did that was um, really smart was that they built this garden based on what they thought um, the, the water that they could harvest from this land would be able to sustain. Um, so they, you know, they, uh, and that resulted in this garden that is uh, on the on the smaller side of you know some of the estates that you see around the world, but it, it was sustainable in that they they were mindful of what they could actually um, keep going well. Um, uh, not long after they built the reservoir and started living with that quantity of water, they realized that it wasn't enough, and so they had um, wells dug on the property. Um, I think originally there were um, 33 wells that were dug. Um, at one point they had five functioning wells. We still today have three functioning wells, although we're looking at um, doing some more exploration of um, places that we can, can harvest more water from, from the land. Uh, and then during the born, then, um, so the, the borns lived pretty well with what they um, were able to produce in terms of water. As the garden grew, uh, you know, I don't know, how um, the, the Ross decided to allocate their use of water, but um, they needed more water. And so they were able to bring water over from Crystal Springs Reservoir as well. And so that, that continues to be where we get our, our domestic water, our potable water for people to drink. And, and it's what is in the restrooms. Um, and, but we still have a quantity of uh, well water that we um, harvest um, as long as we can each year to irrigate the, the landscape, um, so that so that's really good. Um, but yeah, the 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 Bournes really did build this place um, so that it could be something that they could live from um, as as best they could. Um, I don't think it necessarily was that that 
uh, it wasn't that idea for the Ross, but for the Bournes, it was it was the driving force for building this place and how they designed it was wanting to um, to be able to, to live off of it as best they could. You have been on this estate for 26 years. Have you seen any impact by the global warming or the drought? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I've, I've been here through at least three drought cycles and um, it, it, uh, they, it, the drought, um, and, and there have been more be, before I came, and, and originally this whole garden was irrigated with, with little sprinklers. Um, the people, they're, they're called a, a, a fan head that was put on this, what we call a watering horse, and those were moved all around the garden. There were, you know, dozens of them, um, and it would take the horticulturists um, in the summer um, two full days each week to, to water the entire garden. Um, so a lot of um, human effort, but also um, wasteful because it, it doesn't have the, um, it doesn't have the, um, you don't have the ability to um, uh, monitor the water in, in the way that you can with a, with a regular irrigation system. And so um, in the, the 90s, uh, 80s and 90s, a, a full-blown irrigation system was put in um, and we can be much more um, conservative in the water that we put down. Um, but, um, so, and, and that started when we had the droughts, there were droughts in the 1970s that um, inspired um, Filoli to um, eventually put in the irrigation system. Um, these days, we had a, a cycle of droughts around um, 2014, 15, 16, and um, with those, we, uh, we actually turned some of the irrigation off on some of the lawns. We cut back on a lot of the woody plantings, so, the, so fruit trees and shrubs and things like that, we cut down on the, the irrigation. Um, and then we also did a, a test of drought tolerant um, grass varieties for lawns. And so actually this lawn um, that we're sitting amongst is um, a variety called uh, no mo fescue, and this was the winner from the 14 different varieties that we trialed. Um, it uses 30% less water than, than typical turf varieties. Um, it, uh, it, it has some downsides. It doesn't take a lot of traffic, but it takes some traffic. Um, but it's a beautiful kind of um, lush flowing lawn that you, you let grow a little bit taller and then you, and then you only have to mow it every um, four to six weeks as well. So in terms of maintenance, it's, it's a lot less work. Um, so this was one of our um, great um, outcomes of the last drought. This, this previous drought, um, we cut back where we, we could, but, um, but water is always, you know, I've, I've told stories already about um, some of the interesting history about water here. Um, we're, we're near Crystal Springs Reservoir. There's a lot, Mr. Bourne was president of the Spring Valley Water Company. And so, um, so water is kind of deep in um, the, the history of Filoli. So this summer, we're, we're, we're telling a, a story called Blue Gold, The Power and Privilege of Water. And um, it's, a, it's an interpretive display that talks about the history of water from um, the native people who lived here originally to the, the Spanish rancheros that were on this land. Um, to the, the, the Bourne family and the Roth family and today and, and, and all the history of water there. And with this exhibit also in, in the garden, we are, uh, we're really focusing on um, drought tolerant plants. So the sunken garden, which I've talked about a couple times, will be planted in succulents 
and um, plants that come from the Mediterranean or the drier regions of the world. Um, so they, uh, they're used to a summer with no water and so they, um, are, they use very little water compared to apple trees and, and some of the other things around the garden. Um, and uh, so we're, we're really focusing on that, um, that display, telling the story of what you know, people can do in terms of um, water cons conserving. But your original question was about global warming and what I've seen. And uh, I, uh, what sparked that, um, uh, me remembering that, was we're sitting amongst some of the plants that are most impacted by global warming, including the fruit trees, which I've talked about. Uh, fruit trees are a type of plant. All plants, well, not all plants, um, but uh, there are the majority of plants need a certain amount of cold temperatures in the wintertime and with global in order for them to flower and produce fruit. And uh, the impact of global warming is that there are some varieties that let's say they need 800 hours of below 40 degrees each winter in order for them to be able to flower. Um, if we're only getting 600 hours because the earth is warmer and, um, and not, not producing, we're not having the cold days that we should, or we did historically, then they're not going to flower well, um, eventually may die. We also have lilacs um, and um, uh, peonies, which are plants that need extra cool winters. Um, so uh, I'm definitely seeing those plants flowering later because they don't get their cold until later. Um, I was actually looking back at some, um, some history we have on our tree peony collection, um, a different group of plants related to, you know, the cut flower peonies. And um, it was a letter that um, my predecessor wrote to um, the American Peony Society about the peonies being in full bloom in the tree, the, both peonies, both the tree peonies and the abrasive peonies were in full bloom in mid-April. Um, uh, or the, the, the herbaceous were just starting, the, the tree peonies were, um, were in full bloom. Um, and we're now probably a month um, earlier, um, this way, a month earlier than those dates now. Um, so this was a letter written uh, in the late 80s, and now 30 plus years later, we're, um, we're a month later. So, um, so global warming is, is impacting things, and I, I wish we had more of those nuggets of history, and, and maybe we do in, in our archives, but uh, it's something that I, I hope to do is um, take more of these notes about when things are, are blooming each year so that we can, can start tracking um, how things are changing uh, moving forward. Um, so yeah, global warming is definitely a concern. Water conservation is a concern. We're looking at other, other types of plants that we can use to replace plants within the garden that um, don't need as much water um, in the future, um, but still provide the same um, elements in terms of um, their design. Um, so the yew trees are, are an example. Um, you know, we're looking at potentially replacing in, in places our, our hedges, our boxwood hedges require a lot of water and there are things that you can grow that you can hedge into long lines of boxes um, that are um, much more water conserving. Can you tell us about uh, the programs and activities that the as they offer to yeah. the public? Yeah, um, so there are a lot. It's kind of out of my, my wheelhouse a little bit, but I'll, I'll um, you, you know, in this, we're, we try to have 
um, an overriding theme for each season or seasons like the blue gold um, for the summer and the fall. Um, so our seasons are winter, spring, summer, fall usually, and then holidays. Um, and within each of those seasons, there are a number of offerings. We're still kind of coming back from COVID in terms of programs and what we can offer um, because some of the, some of the programs, um, it, it requires you have going into an indoor space. And so we're, we're, we're really broadening um, what we can do in terms of using the garden. So the orchard days, which I mentioned earlier, um, just kind of jumping into fall, is an example of um, something that we learned from COVID. Uh, we used to do a much more indoor fruit focused event and now we have orchard days where the orchard is open it's safe you can walk around with your family um, it's it's maybe not as an intensive um, event but that was the what we did was a one day fall festival and now we have actually from the last weekend in september through the end of october every weekend the orchard's open so there are many more it's created many more opportunities and uh, so allows a lot more people to attend and to enjoy the orchard. But winter, we usually um, do have a ballroom series, which is art focused. So um, performing arts of different kinds happen in the winter. Um, we celebrate uh, Lunar New Year each year in some way in winter. Um, we'll have some kind of a plant exhibit in winter. Um, we've done orchids and we've done bonsai, um, although now this year we've moved bonsai to the spring and we have bonsai happening um, in the spring of this year. Um, during uh, summer, um, we have uh, we have our, our summer nights. So every Thursday, the garden is open until 8 p.m. So it offers people an opportunity to, to get to see the garden in um, the evening light. It's it's really beautiful. And any opportunity you have to come and see um, finally, you know, after five o'clock, um, as the sun is getting low, the light changes. It's really beautiful, and um, uh, and then. Um, Fall, I talked about um, Orchard Days is, is kind of the highlight, but there are other programs on season. And then Holidays is actually becoming one of our, our biggest um, seasons of the year. Spring traditionally was when we had the biggest visitation for a season. Um, it's now becoming Holidays. So Holidays um, begins the, the um, weekend, the weekend before Thanksgiving. And this year we'll run into, through the first week in January. Um, and holidays is becoming much more of an outdoor event with with lights and so this year um, we're we're upping our light um, display game um, hugely um, there are all kinds of things that are new this year for holidays and, and should really make for uh, a wonderful wonderful season for people um, we also decorate the house and and other parts of the the grounds um, so that there are you know vignettes and displays and things that you can see um, throughout throughout the grounds but um, the the nights uh, and the lights are are definitely where we, we put a lot of our, our focus um, for for the holiday season and there are Santa Saturday Santa, Santa weekends where, where kids can come and um, see Santa um, and uh, it's it's just a it's it's becoming um, like the like the old um, iterations of what we did in the holidays it's becoming a tradition but it's becoming a tradition for many more people many more families it's it's much more family focused uh, and uh, a wonderful uh, a wonderful way to um, share um, you know something in your community with with um, family who comes from out of town um, 
but so we have we have families who come you know two three times during holidays when different family are come for thanksgiving or during during christmas or other holidays that people celebrate during the holiday season and um and share Philoli, um, but they'll sometimes come on their own. So um, it, it's great that we're open um, much longer and um, there are many more opportunities. But, you know, it's, uh, I'll put on a plug for membership because uh, there are only a certain number of tickets that we offer to non-members. And the nights uh, last year, by the time we opened, um, I don't know, let's say there were 50,000 tickets available for, for the night times. I think we had fewer than 10,000 tickets by the time we opened um, the first day for holidays. So so nighttime tickets go fast um, because people have really learned that it's a, a great a great experience. Even in the rain, uh, you'll come here some nights and it's raining and um, it's still, it's a different light. Things kind of glow in a different way when it's raining. So uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's a great experience, um, rain or shine or rain or, or moonlight, um, depending on when you come. Well, there's no bad weather in California. That's right, I know. We're and, such wimps here. <laughs> and this is the, um, the grounds for old generations, yeah. any age exactly. that they can yeah. come visit. Yeah. What do you recommend if somebody, like first time visitor with a very limited time, yeah. where they should go see? I would say if, if you have an hour, um, it, I, I think just kind of hit the, you know, I'm a horticulturist, I love the garden, so I think you hit the, you hit the, the core of the garden and see the displays in the garden. Um, but I also love the house very much, so if you have an hour and a half, you really can see the house probably in a half an hour. Um, and uh, so, so hour and a half, see, spend more of the time in the garden, but you also will have time to visit the house. There's usually more interpretive information there and you can learn more about the history when you go through the house. Um, if you have um, two hours, you can spend a, a little bit more time in the garden, a little bit more time in the house. Um, if you have three hours, um, then you can also walk the estate trail, which is a mile long loop on the grounds and see, um, see some of the, see the natural areas, which is uh, a really wonderful addition to, to a visit. Um, but we have people who will come for, you know, four or five hours and um, will um, take a break and go have lunch in the cafe or they may bring a picnic we have picnic tables down um, near the parking lot and so you can have a picnic if you want or you can visit the cafe and then go back and walk things again um, i mean i love walking in the garden in different directions so you can do that on a visit or um you know you know just do your loop um but you know one of the beauties of membership is you can come back every day every week um, every month and we definitely have members who come weekly just to see because this garden is always changing there are always things in bloom and um, it changes uh, uh, weekly um, things kind of come up and then have their peak and then something else is coming um, but with the collection that we have here of plants you know the camellias that I mentioned um, camellias kind of span the whole winter season we have other things that bloom in the winter so there's always things that are blooming here whenever you come um, which is great so you should never hopefully have a bad visit here and, and not see some display. There are definitely some times where there's less flowers, but there are always some flowers that you can see. Um, but, but spring and kind of midsummer are, are kind of the high peaks of, of, uh, of bloom time for us. You're encouraging me to count during the winter in the rain. Yeah. So that's yeah. probably in my next agenda. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jen. You're I welcome. really appreciate my all pleasure. very informative um, information. Good. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you so much. That's it. Good.